Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for this morning. I thank you for just um, the evidence of uh, how much people love you. Go out and tell others about you. I thank you for the table, for our chance to come before you as, a, as, a, as one body, as your body. I just pray um, now for a quiet heart. We give this word back to you. It's in your name. Amen. We've been called into this series, Good Neighbor Out of Galatians, Galatians 5.22. And we've been looking at some of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit and how these actually practically play out in our lives. How we can be filled with the Spirit so that we have the power of the Spirit so that we can love our neighbors in supernatural ways, so that we can be filled up, and instead of going out in our own human weakness, we can love our neighbors in ways that we could not before in our own strength. As a body, as Wyzetta, that's what we want, to be true disciples of love, to boldly and humbly step into the lives of people around us. And as we approach this text in Galatians 5, the question before us is always how. Because the context of the fruit of the Spirit, what Paul spends so much time setting up in the whole chapter, chapter 5, is this. 5.14. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then, a couple of verses before that, he sets up life rooted in the Spirit as freedom. In verse 13, he says, You, my brothers, were called to be free. That's the life rooted in the Spirit. Wyzetta, my brothers and sisters, we are called to be free, right out of Galatians 5. And then Paul ends the chapter of the freedom in Christ with 24 and 25 by saying this, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And that's our how. We keep in step with the Spirit. We remain in the Spirit. And this is not just an isolated text. This is not just an isolated idea to Galatians 5. This theme runs over and over and over again in the Bible. Jesus says it explicitly in John 15, 4 through 9. He says this, Abide in me, as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, And my words abide in you. Ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. It's the same analogy that we see here in Galatians. It's the exact same language. 
How do we bear fruit? As we think our way through it, I think there are three parts to what we're talking about in this metaphor. First, there's the branch. That's you and me. That's disciples of Jesus. But, of course, there's the vine that we have to be connected with. What's that? What is the vine? It's Jesus. It's his spirit. It's the power that sustains our spiritual life. It's the spirit of God. We abide in Jesus through the spirit of God. And one of the things that scripture always does to talk about the power of the spirit, in John 7, 37 through 38, Jesus says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and let the one who believes in me drink. We are the branch. Then there's the source of life, the water, the power, the spirit. And then what we have is the fruit. And what is the fruit? The fruit is the outer expression of our inner life. Those things, those characteristics that we've been talking about, Paul says, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are all reflections of what is going on inside by abiding in the Spirit. If you notice in this passage in Galatians, Paul is not just concerned, he's not mainly concerned with an external byproduct. That's not Paul's heart. He is dealing with the inner person, the soul, the heart. We often look at external issues in the faith and we say to our church members, okay, why aren't you serving more? Why don't you love your neighbors? Why aren't you giving more? These are all external things. Why are you so concerned with the material? Why do you want more and more stuff? Why are you so easily offended? But we kind of miss the point because these are external signs of a deeper heart issue. For me, abiding in Jesus and walking in the Spirit, which are the same thing, boils down to a daily understanding of how much Jesus really, really, truly, deeply loves me. One of the misunderstandings of the spiritual life is that we think that we can do this stuff through our own human effort. And so what happens? People come to church, they hear messages of the fruit of the Spirit out of Galatians 5, they hear that you must be loving, you must be filled with joy, you must peace, you must have self-control, gentle kindness, and what happens? They go out and they say, I'm gonna do it, and they do it in their own strength, and they get defeated. Your job is to remain rooted in the Spirit, to be in step with the Spirit, and to abide. Some of you are doing that right now, here this morning. You came in to worship, you took a few moments to place yourself and the awesome truth that we are gathered together with our brothers and sisters before Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. When you came to communion before the table, your hearts were quiet. You were thanking. You were repenting. You were listening. You were waiting. That's in step with the Spirit. That's what we mean when we talk about it. That's what we talk about when there are rivers of life that will flow out of our mouths. The fruit that you bear will begin to produce acts of love, joy, and peace. And you will be a blessing 
to everyone that you come across. We often mistake the fruit of the Spirit for impressive, visible accomplishments, the external. You may have achieved extraordinary things in your professional life. You may have achieved extraordinary things even in the church, but if it is not manifestations of being in step with the spirit of abiding with Jesus Christ, then it is not discipleship. This morning, in the Good Neighbor series, we're talking about goodness. And as I was praying and preparing, initially when I came to goodness, I had this really deep sense of dread. You want to know why? What's the most generic adjective that we have? Yeah. Good, right? When I come to my kids and I ask Joseph, are you paying attention, son? Joseph. (laughs) How was baseball practice? What did he just say? He said good, yeah? Georgia, how was piano lesson? Good. Terry, how's my message so far? She said, pretty good. So I got demoted from good. That's a joke, okay? Terry is my best. I know I have to pause a little bit because if I don't, people will come up and say, Terry, are you really not that encouraging? She's my best encourager. She's the person, our family joke is, I come to the kids and I say, Georgia, Joseph, be very, very careful. You're about to get in trouble. And they'll look at me and say, what for? For being too awesome, okay? That's what Terry says to me, George, be careful, you're going to get in trouble. The point is that good goodness have been demoted to the realm of generic, thoughtless responses. You know, we can really sink our theological teeth into some of the other things, patience, forgiveness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are characteristics that are really tangible. I know how that plays out in my life, but this morning... This morning, we are stuck with good and goodness, okay? Be good. As I prayed about it, something happened recently. I was at Joseph's baseball game, and I saw Georgia playing about a football field away. And I hadn't seen my baby girl all day, so I decided to walk over to her and just see how her day was. So I'm walking over to Georgia, and I get about halfway there, and I see that she's playing with some friends that I don't know. And then I think to myself, I hesitate a little bit because I'm like, when does that age come when your kids get a little bit embarrassed of you? Am I going to go over there and Georgia's going to say, okay, dad, my day was good. Everything's good. I'm playing with my friends. Leave me alone. But I got over there and that didn't happen. I got over there and within 10 feet, Georgia runs and she gives me a big hug. I ask who her friends are. She introduces her friends to me, and then she introduces me to her friends, and she says, this is my dad, and he's a good daddy. Yeah? You can have anything you want, yeah? (laughs) Ask your mom for a pony. That'd be good. (laughs) But that got me thinking, why does Georgia think I'm a good daddy? Because in that instant, Instance, good was no longer generic. I understood it, and I think I know why. Why does Georgia think I'm a good daddy? Because she knows 
that I love her more than myself. I will do anything for her. Her well-being is more important than mine. She's before me. And so, as I started to think about this biblically, others, other examples of goodness, there are two obvious examples. The first is from a human side, someone who always thought of others first, Barnabas. And then there's our Heavenly Father's example. And we're going to look at both of these stories because we're going to learn this morning just how really cool goodness is. Barnabas. Barnabas was rooted in goodness. We see this in Acts 11. 11, 22 through 24. The disciples have been scattered all over the Mediterranean coastlands after the persecution and murder of Stephen. And what happens is a lot of them go north from Jerusalem, about 400 miles to Antioch. And there's this church plant in Antioch. And you will remember that's where they're first called Christians, but there's other stuff that's happening. It's a little bit of a mess. But many people are coming to Christ, to faith, and news comes to Jerusalem, and they send Barnabas. This is where we see Barnabas' goodness. So Acts 11, 22 through 24. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what grace, had done, grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. It's obvious that the writer of Acts, Luke, admires Barnabas because he says flat out, he's a good man. But where does this come from? Where does this goodness come from? And how does it produce a particular root that we see in Barnabas that produces the fruit? How might it produce the same goodness in us? Well, I think a key here is right after he was a good man. Can you put that back up, Acts? Right after he was a good man, it says he was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And that's what we want to do. We want to look at how all those relate to each other. Goodness, fullness of spirit, and faith. Because this is exactly what Paul is talking about, the same theme in the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. He says that goodness is fruit of the Holy Spirit. You don't get the Holy Spirit by external acts of goodness. That's the reverse order. What happens instead is that the Holy Spirit comes in and starts to make you good. But what is our part? And this is what I like about this text because it shows us our part right there. Our part is faith. That's why Luke doesn't just say Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit. He says he was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Faith is what we do. What does faith have to do with the work of the Holy Spirit? Paul works this a lot, works this out a lot in Galatians. Let's go back to Galatians 3, chapter 3, verse 2, because this is the context of the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says this. He's asking a question. I would like to learn just one thing from you, Paul says. Did you receive the Spirit by the works, okay, the external works of the law, or by believing what you heard? It's faith. Believing is faith. We receive the Spirit by faith in the Word of God. And Paul doesn't want us to miss this, so again he asks in Galatians 3, 5, a couple verses later, so I ask again, says Paul, 
Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? It's faith. It's belief. The assumed answer is faith. The spirit received by faith goes on being supplied in our daily lives, producing the fruit of the spirit. So let's pull it all together. At the very beginning of our faith journey, we receive the Holy Spirit trusting in the truth of the gospel. Galatians 3.2. Then the Christian life goes on and on, and there's a need again and again for the Spirit to show up, to be renewed. And this too happens by trusting in the word of God's promises. Galatians 3.5. And then Paul builds his case, and he says in Galatians 5.22, one of the practical fruits or products of this Spirit-filled faith is goodness. So when Luke says that Barnabas was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith, my understanding is that Barnabas had a daily faith, daily devoting himself to Jesus. And by that, the Holy Spirit became rooted in his heart. And that was the practical result where goodness played out in Barnabas' life, where he is focusing on love for others more than himself. The greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. So what is goodness? I think from here, from Barnabas, what we see, the key, we just believe and we stay rooted in the Holy Spirit, and then the fruits show up. Our question is this, because Luke paints a beautiful portrait of goodness. Question is this, how does faith produce this kind of goodness? I think part of the answer is what we see in the relationship, what's happening in Jerusalem, and you think about a church plant, these are all new believers, and I think Barnabas really gets this. Faith feels the sense of wonder of being accepted as an outsider to God's blessing. That's exactly what they're doing right now. It's the Gentiles. They're outside the blessing. Barnabas gets this. He and Paul are missionaries to the Gentiles. The cross is the reason that they're no longer outsiders. And therefore, faith has this kind of built-in empathy for outsiders. Barnabas clearly has that. He has the goodness of empathy with outsiders because in his faith, he still feels the wonder of being accepted by God. Now there's a question for us. What is our empathy quota? First, ask yourself, do you still feel wonder and awe and the deepest gratitude when you come before the table of communion? And if so, how does that empathy translate tomorrow, to Monday, when you go back to the real world and you're surrounded by outsiders? What's our empathy quota? We look again in Acts at verse 23. It tells us that Barnabas saw the grace of God in what was a blemished church. Everyone's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything is possible God. That's what we say at YZ. We aren't a perfect church. You wanna know why? Because you and I attend here, okay? Mostly you, but a little bit me, yeah? We are sinners and in need of grace. It's part of Barnabas' goodness that he can look beyond the blemishes of this early church plant and see the grace of God. Not everyone can see the marks of grace, of God's grace in the Christians. We see that's happening in Acts, but Barnabas could. Why does this kind of faith produce goodness? Because faith lives by 
grace. Are we people of grace? For myself, often, I'm not. I'm not very patient. I'm quick to judge. But the eyes of faith spend time looking for grace. If I believe Jesus is who he says he is and he has shown me so much grace at this table, then how can I not look for the slightest hint of grace in other people? Nobody's perfect. So Barnabas had the goodness of being able to see God's grace in the imperfect lives in the Gentile Christians at Antioch because his faith lived in grace. Faith cannot survive without grace. Barnabas was a good man. I want to close because I want to unpack something that if we understand, I think we'll get a good picture. I want to look at our Heavenly Father because goodness is really spelled out, what it looks like. It's what Luke's been talking about, being filled with the Holy Spirit by faith. It's what Paul is talking about in the fruit of the Spirit of the Galatians. And if we understand this aspect, then we'll truly understand goodness. Last week, Mike Brinkman did a great job with kindness. The week before, David King did an excellent job with patience. One of the things that struck me about both their sermons is that they both read from 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. This is another theme that runs throughout the Bible. God's glory is almost always equated with his goodness. God's goodness is his glory. And that's an awesome, mind-blowing concept that we want to look at because it has deep, deep relevance for how we live. Let's trace this thread all the way back through the Bible because this is a biblical truth. And let's go back to Moses and see what this really means. Because Moses is one of those people that we can say with beyond a shadow of doubt, knew God. The Bible tells us that God spoke to Moses face to face, as one speaks to a friend. And God's glory was so strong in Moses' face that became radiant with the presence of God. We're told that the Israelites could not look directly at his face because it was so bright with God's glory. That's an awesome thing to think about. And then what happens is we get to the end of Exodus in Exodus 33:18. God and Moses are talking again. Israel has sinned, Moses intercedes on their behalf, and then he requests from the Lord, he says, God, teach me your ways so that I can have favor with you. And God then says that his presence will be with Moses and will give him rest. But what I want to look at in this dialogue between God and Moses, Moses makes a very profound request in verse 18. Then Moses said, now, show me your glory. Have you ever prayed that? Amen. Have you ever asked God to show you his glory? First, what does that even mean? It's a bold prayer, but what does it mean? Now, if it's just you and me, and if we were God, how would we show Moses glory? First thing that comes to my mind is I would start with lightning then a little booming thunder. And then I would reveal the stars, I would speed up time, I would take Moses through a wormhole like in 2001 Space Odyssey, and the astronaut just at the end, seeing all the colors and everything blurred together, he just is gently sobbing. Boom, Moses, that just happened, that's glory. That's not 
God's response. That's not the Lord's response. God says this in verse 34. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In other words, the most glorious thing about God is not his power, majesty, strength. The most glorious thing about God is how good he is. God passed by Moses and proclaimed his goodness, kindness, love, mercy, and compassion. That is God's glory. And God revealed to Israel as much glory as they can stand. In Exodus 32, we see this. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. What's happening here? God asked them to build a tent, a tabernacle, for him to come and dwell, and his glory settles on it. God's glory comes unexpectedly in a tent, humbly, to imperfect people who in just chapter 32 have blown it very hugely. Their sin is so great that Moses has to intercede on their behalf. And in Exodus 32, 31 through 32, says this. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, blot me out of your book that you have written. That's a powerfully bold prayer too. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Father, forgive my brother-in-law. But if not, take me. Father, forgive the coworker that I always compete with for the wrong that he or she did against me, but if not, take me. Father, forgive my parents for the wrongs that they've done me, but if not, take me. That's a prayer. But that's the context of this passage where we see Moses pray this, God, show me your glory. And God says, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. It's in the context of imperfect people. And God manifests his presence in this tent, in this tabernacle. And this is where God dwells among the people. This is where the Ark of the Covenant, God's tangible, real sign that he is with Israel, is stored in the tabernacle. God's glory and goodness are manifested in the Ark, in the tabernacle. Okay? Fast forward. John. The prologue of John, John 1, 1 through 18. John talks about Jesus in these words. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. I remember when I studied the prologue of John, John 1 through 18 is one of my favorite passages. And when I studied it, this is one of the reasons why. The Greek word here for dwelt is skene, which means tent or tabernacle. The verb could be translated just like this. The word became flesh and tabernacled in our midst. Do you see the connection? What's happening here? This is the glory of God manifested in our presence. It came in the form of a gentle, fragile baby. Flesh that can and one day will die. God said, you know what? Now you can hear my glory teach. Lepers, outcasts, Come, now you can touch my glory. 
I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And you shall call his name Jesus. Before he was crucified, Jesus prayed at the end of the upper room discourse, which is the context for communion. He prayed, Father, thou hast come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. And then he went to the cross. The world doesn't understand that kind of glory. But it's very glorious to those that abide. It's very glorious to those in step with the Spirit, rooted in the Spirit. It's very glorious to those who believe. Because, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, they gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's God's goodness. Before he died, Jesus prayed the most astounding prayer again in John 17, 20 through 24, the upper room discourse, praying for his disciples and for us. He says this, I do not ask for these things alone, but for those who, for these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also have in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them so that they may be one as we are one. Does it sound familiar? John 15, abide in me as I abide in you. Do you understand that Jesus has given you God's glory? That's the gospel, that's good news. As I think about this, I think some of the problem is that we have made goodness generic, and we only partially understand the goodness of God. And so we kind of partially follow him. But if we truly understand the goodness of God's love for us, it would change us. That's the miracle that Paul is talking about in the fruit of the Spirit. It's the miracle at the core of our beings that we would understand his love. You guys want to know a secret? I am not kind. I'm not forgiving. I'm not patient. And I'm not filled with deep joy or love. I'm not gentle. And I totally lack self-control. In my own power. In my own strength. But I believe. I believe with all my heart. I have faith. I trust that God is good. And that's my only job. That's your only job. Remain and abide in him, trusting that through the cross, his great love and sacrifice is evident and cannot be doubted. In Matthew 13, 14, it says, a day is coming. Jesus says, this day is coming, that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's you. That's me. You are going to glow with the Father's goodness. You are going to glow because of Jesus' sacrifice, because of what it truly means, this life, in step with the Spirit, because he rose. Jesus is alive, and he sent his Spirit to live with us, in us, through us. Death cannot defeat us. We are alive. As Paul says, we are free, and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Let's close with these very rich words from Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says this, And we who have unveiled faces all reflect the, reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Does that sound familiar? Moses talked to God 
face to face. Here it says unveiled faces, being transformed with ever increasing glory. Christ himself is the glory of God and the fullness of his radiance. His is the eternal and unfading glory. Christ was with the Father before the world began, and we who believe are partakers in this glory. That's what sanctification is, is becoming more like Christ. Do you see yourself beginning to glow? That's the process. That is what we're called to. You know the most awesome discovery I ever made in my faith journey, what it was? When I truly understood what Jesus said when he said the kingdom is now. We do not have to wait for this glorious future hour. We can learn every moment of this life. We can live it to God's glory because the glory of God is here right now. In this table, God's goodness is passing before us. We see God is good. We see his glory on the cross. And we want to shine so that others will see his goodness. Every day, let's be the church that helps others move towards worshiping God and becoming more glorious. Jesus came for imperfect people, and he came to give us good, glorious, eternal things. God loves you. Let's be the church that shows the world our Savior rose from the dead, that he lives in us. Let's believe with our whole hearts. Let's shine, showing our neighbors and the world how good our God really is. That's the goodness of the fruit of the Spirit. Why is that a... Let's close in prayer. Father, with Moses, we pray. If you are pleased with us, teach us your ways so we may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Now, Father, we give it back to you. Lord, now show us. Show Wyzetta.